0: Good morning redemption. It's really
1: nice to see you guys. Um, I love the like giant band we have this morning. Um, partially because this morning is about worship and singing. In uh, I don't know. I guess a way that I hope uh, changes us as a congregation. Right? I, I hope it changes each of us as individuals. Um, but honestly, I hope in the long run it changes us as a congregation. Let me, let me get back to that, but let me really start with this. Um, I am endlessly fascinated with the snippets of life that we see Jesus living, particularly in his um, final days before crucifixion. I think I'm endlessly fascinated by these because they are uh, like the lion's share of what the gospel accounts of Jesus' life have to deal with. Like there, there's more about those last seven days than there is about any other period in his life. It's like um, so much of the gospels is focused on this last week. And so, of course, if the gospels are um, that hyped about it, then maybe naturally I am too. Um, but, but I really like thinking about the the final days of Jesus' life because I think there's something so revealing and illuminating about who Jesus is in these very human moments. Because um, the the Gospels are written in this, like, um, I don't know, pre-modern way. So so it doesn't tell us a whole lot about emotions. It doesn't, like, do a ton of descriptive work. It's relatively sparsely written. And so uh, a lot of what we're getting out of the text, we have to, like, use... reliance on the Holy Spirit, reliance on tradition and, and exegetical work. And like, we have to do all this hard work to kind of understand like what the texts are supposed to mean. And we have to hear from people throughout the ages of what they thought those t- texts were supposed to mean. And it's, it's like this really hard thing to wrestle through. Um, but one of the pieces of, uh, that, that really helps when, we, when it comes to the last few days of Jesus' life is we know so much about what he had to be thinking and feeling because he kept telling us, hey, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. Like, like he, he, he wasn't taken by surprise when he was crucified. He'd been telling his disciples for years by that point that he was eventually going to die for the sins of the world. Um, and they, like, brushed him off and blew him off and didn't quite understand it, and they reinterpreted it and over-spiritualized it. Yeah, he said die, but he doesn't mean die. He just means, like, he's not gonna have, like, the best day. He's gonna, like, be dead, like, lol. I don't know, like, I, I don't know exactly what um he, they, they thought he meant, but but they interpret him in just wacky ways and yet he kept telling us and kept telling them and by virtue of the gospel writers keeps telling us he's going to die, he's going to be betrayed, he's going to suffer. And so when we come to these last uh, couple of days, we know what's going through his head because we know that he knows that he is not long for this world. We know that he knows that he's about to be nailed to a piece of tree and stripped and exposed for the whole world to see him die. And so I'm endlessly fascinated with these snippets around the last days of Jesus because we know so much about his mindset and his expectations and his emotions. And as we dig into these stories, what we see is who Jesus was, what he was like. He, he responds in odd ways, in, in beautiful and corrective and restorative, like really human dignifying ways, but like odd ways ways that I definitely wouldn't have responded and maybe most of you wouldn't either but but we see these snippets and we understand like who Jesus was as a person and more than all that what we understand about these snippets of Jesus' life who reveals who he is as a person is exactly the thing that's revealing to us who God is as a person because nobody's ever seen God or known God except the one who is in the very bosom of the Father from ages eternal, he has come down and made him known, right? So, so uh, th- this is a quote of John, um, but, but what John means is the way that we get to know who God is is by looking at Jesus, We have Old Testament, we have laws, we have prophecies, we have New Testament apostles and all of this, and all of this is good, but all of this serves only to reinforce the fact that when we want to know who God is, the way that we do it is understand who Jesus is. So we come to these snippets, and they're not just fascinating, um, like, uh, little vignettes on who Jesus is, as as wonderful and great as that would be. They're fascinating, illuminating vignettes on who the God of the universe is. So we come to this morning's text, which is literally one verse. Um, It's Mark 14, 26. And it's this, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives and it feels like such a throwaway line, you're just like, okay, so they did this, and then after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. But, but like it's, it's worth, in, in my mind, like really thinking about like what's going on here. There's something very revealing about the fact that on the night he was going to be betrayed, so, so, so this is the night of the Last Supper, so if you were with us last week, Brandon preached um, a bunch of verses from this very same chapter leading up to this moment, and what Jesus has told his disciples in that moment uh, was, hey, th- this woman who's pouring oil on me, she's preparing my body for burial. You guys get the Passover meal ready. Now, the Passover was this um, time where they would slaughter animals, paint the blood on the doorposts and doorframes, and God would spare his people in Egypt as they were um, headed out to split the Red Sea and, and all of that. Um, but this festival, this, this um, repeated and celebrated year after year after year, the Jewish people are still celebrating. And on the night of the Passover, festival, Jesus tells his disciples, hey, I want you to go and prepare a place for us. Here's how you're going to find it. Here's how you're going to do it. And then as he's eating the last supper with them, he starts telling some very revealing things to them. Hey, you, you know I'm going to die. It's, it's really that time I'm about to give myself as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. And, and he tells them, I'm going to do this because one of you who is here with me is going to betray me no, really, this is going to happen. And then he institutes communion. He says, uh, the, this, this bread is my body. This uh, uh, juice, this wine is my blood. This is the blood of the new covenant. And what he, what he starts to do is, is he makes the Passover about himself. He says, I am the true Passover sacrifice. And there's something like uh, theologically rich about this, and we can go and we can uh, reinterpret all of the Old Testament and try to understand what um, God was saying to the Hebrew people, to, to the Jewish people for like uh, millennia at this point. And we can understand that how, how that has to do with Jesus and how Jesus understood himself. And, and there's so much rich theologically there. And then on the heels of that, after Jesus had said this, they, they, they sing a hymn and they get up and they go to the Mount of Olives. Now it's at the Mount of Olives where he's gonna, um, he's gonna wrestle with God and he's going to um, pray, God, not, not my will but yours. Would you take this cup from me? He's gonna eventually be betrayed by Judas. He's gonna stay up all night praying before on Friday morning he's finally tried and then crucified that day. And, and all of that is grand drama and we're gonna spend lots of time there the next few weeks as we head towards Easter. But I wanna camp out on this, on this single solitary verse here. I, I guess, because I so love the idea that Jesus sang. I, I don't know when I first noticed this. I, I started trying to study the Bible on my own when I was probably in high school and spent a lot of time doing Bible stuff in college, math nerd though I was. Um, eventually ended up back in seminary, and I don't think it was until after I was done with my masters in theology, that it finally struck me that, oh, my word, Jesus sings. Like, Jesus sings? Wait, Jesus sings? Why does Jesus sing? What does it mean for him to sing? Like, it's really strange that on the night he's about to die, he's telling his disciples, hey, I am the new Passover sacrifice eat my flesh and drink my blood, find healing and life forever and ever and ever. And then he's gonna go out and he's gonna wrestle and he's gonna like burst blood vessels and and sweat blood. And he's just going to wrestle with God and then going to be crucified. And on that night, what he decides he wants to do with his very last night on earth is, hey, I wanna sing some worship songs to our great God together with some of my best friends. And I find that endlessly moving. And, and I think I find that endlessly moving because I've spent so much of my life like downplaying the, the value of music in general, well, particularly downplaying the value of like worship, of hymns, of expressing thoughts about God to God, of being kind of vulnerable and emotional, like in His presence. I've I've dismissed that as being like less than less important, less less um, central to my faith than good theology. Right, I'm, I'm not arguing against good theology. You guys know that I think way too much about theological things, right? I'm not, I'm not trying to poo-poo doing good theology. And yet, so much of my life and my understanding of what does it mean for me to be a, a, a healthy Christian, a spirit-filled Christian, a Jesus-pleasing Christian, a whole Christian, a loving Christian, like so much of it is easy to strip out this idea of, of love, quite honestly, it's about, well, like, I don't have to feel anything about God. Like, you just have to, like, accept and be able to answer, like, the right choice on the multiple test, uh, the, the right um, bubble on the multiple choice test. Like, when I die and, like, Jesus comes to quiz me and say, are you getting in or are you not? Like, I have to know that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And, like, once I can bubble that in and, like, I get my theology all squared away and all right, then, like, does it matter if I, like, love God? Well, isn't, it, isn't love really just sacrifice? Which, n- no, it's not. Uh, not to go too far afield here, uh, but the famous chapter on love, 1 Corinthians 13, that we all know and love. Uh, Paul says exactly this, that if I give away everything that I have and don't love, which means that it's possible for me to sacrifice everything I have and not do it in love, then I'm like empty and vain like it's it's not spiritually pleasing to god it is not spirit filled it is not a good healthy christian thing if i even though if i give away everything that i have or if i deliver my body over to be burned like if i sacrifice everything i have and everything i am for people i can do that sacrifice in a way that is not actually loving therefore we as christians cannot define love as only or even mostly about sacrifice does love entail sacrifice yes absolutely but sacrifice isn't love, love is love. And so I'm like, okay, so what does it mean for me to love my God with my everything? And I like downplay, well, like I don't need to worship, I don't need to feel anything about God. Like uh, the heart is deceitful and desperately sick, who can understand it? Like I'll quote Jeremiah at you guys, and, and you've heard this. Jeremiah's true, Jeremiah's good, I don't dispute that. But I think we downplay the emotional side of things, the love side of things, which is very broad, but, it, but at least for me, I downplay the role of music and hymns. And so to come to this passage, and you're like, on the very last night that he has on earth, Jesus institutes communion, reinterprets a uh, thousand plus years of Jewish understanding of what the Passover is, and then he's about to go and pray, and yet before that, he decided he wanted to sing some hymns with his friends. And, and I find this like... Such a vulnerable thing. Like, I, you, you guys know, um, I don't know, there's, there's like this um, progression that many of us go through. And maybe it's not entirely linear, but, but here's the way that it's gone in my life. Like, like when, I, when I was a kid, like, I was sometimes around the church and sometimes not. And it was this, like, uh, I, I don't really know um, if I'm welcome there if I'm an insider there or what's up there. Um, and I would pray my prayers every now and then and I would read my Bible every now and then and I would try to be connected and try to pray, uh, please Jesus um, most of the time, but I didn't quite know like where I stood, where, where I was. If I was an insider, certainly was never one of the cool church kids, which sounds like an oxymoron, but didn't feel like an oxymoron as a seven-year-old or even a 17-year-old. And then eventually, like, I came to this place where I was, like, super active in church, and all of a sudden I was, like, listening to worship songs and reading the scriptures, and I just had, like, this exuberance. And and then, like, for whatever reason, like, it felt a little intimidating, a little scary, like, the edgy thing to do was to start to be able to confess, it's so like in college one of the most moving, transforming things that I ever experienced was Christian community where like I could be myself, where I could be like, "Hey, I'm I'm still broken sometimes. I still hurt sometimes." And other people around the circle just be able to say, "Yeah, me too." And we're here and we're safe. And so so much of what redemption is built on is exactly this kind of dynamic where we where we aim to be and aspire to be and hope to be safe to to doubt and to hurt, and to continue to have our messes. Not because we love having more messes. We're not trying to make more messes, but the fact is that the vast majority of us continue to live in messes, and if we have to hide that from each other, then we're never going to figure out how to clean any of the mess up. And so, so uh, there's, there's this progression from just kind of naive in the church to, oh, my word, I can be really honest and really brave and really courageous about, like, some of my brokenness. And, and one of the things that um, has taken us years to, to realize and try to do here well, let, let, let me rephrase that. One of the things that it took me years to realize here was that what I was doing was I was creating a space where it was really safe for us to be cynical doubters because, because it's that, that, that's new, and it's fresh, and it's, and it's good, and I, I don't want us to not be a place for you to be cynical doubters. And yet, there was this, like, new frontier where suddenly it didn't feel edgy to be a Doubter, or to be a cynic, or whatever—like it didn't feel scary to be that around you guys. But dang, if it didn't feel scary to like really pray in your presence. Now, I'm not blaming you. I'm actually mostly blaming myself. But I think we go through this progression and some of us on like a church scale and some of us just in our individual lives where we're like, the scariest thing I could do is reveal like the mess that's going on in my heart and my life right now. Like I I want you to, if, if that's where you are and what you experience, like I want you to have the safety and the humility around you or at least the humility of the people around you to invite you into that and realize you don't have to be terrified of that. But but I think that so many of us then end up stuck there, maybe for the rest of our lives, terrified of the vulnerability and the intimacy that comes with actually cracking open our affections. Letting Letting anyone else around us know or see that I love Jesus It's one thing to tell people you love Jesus. It's an entirely different thing to let them see that you love Jesus and to pray with like abandon, with affection, with openness, like you do by yourself, to do that in front of anyone else or to to sing with abandon, like sometimes you do in your car or in your headphones or like on your runs or or wherever you do that. And to, to do that corporately like feels like this shameful thing, like we need to somehow be too cool for it or too edgy, or too hard, or too, like, whatever it is. And, like, the the last frontier of vulnerability and and intimacy is exactly what Jesus is broaching here on his last night on earth when he looks at his 12 closest friends and he says to them, hey, I'm going to die tomorrow. They're going to strip me. They're going to plug out my beard. They're going to spit on me. They're going to ridicule me. They're going to stab me. And I'm going to suffocate on a cross tomorrow. You know what I need tonight from you guys? I need you guys to sing with me. And there is a radical courage a radical amount of bravery that Jesus has in this moment to express his need to his people without posturing, without flexing, without trying to impress them of, nah, man, I don't really need music. I don't really need worship. I don't really need hymns. That's, that, that's for the masses. That's for the weaklings. That's for the saps. Like, give me some theology. Like, let's break open some, you know, I don't know. Um, obviously, I'm about to insert an anachronism here, but you kind of get what I'm saying. So here's what I wanna do in um, the next few minutes together. Uh, Right, so here's, this was kinda part one of the sermon. It's just, insert ourselves back into the moment at the last supper, Jesus tells his friends he's gonna die and then he's gonna go and he's gonna pray all night and he's got like one last hurrah that he's gonna spend with his friends and I ask, what would I want to do then? I don't know, maybe I'd check out and just watch some Netflix, maybe take a nap, maybe like we'd play some poker, or I, I don't know, like I, I don't know what we would do, but Jesus in that moment on that night said, I need to sing some hymns. Now, um, I, I, I think this is true, I think this is real, I think this is part of the reason that I, that I love this, and, and also we know from some of the traditional stuff um, that what's going on at, at Passover for most Jews in most places around this time, right? So the most is important. We don't know for 100% exactly what Jesus sang that night. We, we don't know um, what order they sang them in or how much it, it happened or like how emotive they were or how loud they were or if they had amplification. Okay, we do know that part. Um, I mean, except not really because like Jesus could have like performed a miracle and just like had electricity there for one night only. Um, Anyway, uh, here's what we do know. Most Jews in most places, most of the time at Passover, sang a series of psalms that we still have in our Bibles. Psalm 113, 114, 115, 16, 17, and 18. These six psalms were known as the Hallel Psalms. Um, what, what I want to do over the next few minutes is I want to summarize these for you. There's way too much for me to put them on the screen because uh, I'm just going to get you lost. But, but let, me, let me summarize them. So it's Psalm 113 through 118. If you really want to um, follow along with me, like open your Bible app or open a hard copy um, Bible. If you don't have one, there's one in front of you. There's a bunch of translations and um, some good ones, some better ones. Um, uh, but but what I want to do is I want to kind of like enter into that moment and ask, wait, well, Jesus didn't have to sing these psalms with his closest friends on this night. But, but we know he's saying, what did he sing? And this is our best guess. And here's what I really want to do is I want to I like, um, I started to say, humanize Jesus, that, that's part of it, but, but I want to concretize Jesus. Well what I want us to do is to be able to see Him with our mind 's eye with, like some, with some reality, with some skin, with some flesh, with some emotion, with some like actuality. And, and I love like thinking, they just had dinner, they're still sitting there, they're celebrating the Passover together, and they're like, here's, here's the last thing is we 're going to recite these psalms, sing these psalms together. And so I don't have time to do the whole thing. Um, but these Psalms are remarkable. And what I want us to see is that, that um, concrete, human, earthy, real aspect of Jesus. But, but I also want us to ask, hey, if we were coaching someone on this kind of night, right? If we were um, facing, hey, I know that tomorrow is darkness. There is no light and there is no way out. Like, I'm not hoping for a miracle because God's already told me what's gonna happen. There is no miracle coming. It is going to end in bleakness and suffering tomorrow. Here it is. Stare the night in the face. What, what do we as believers say to that person? Ah, cheer up. God's on your side. Right, like that's the, the broke version I don't know, to do the Twitter meme, you know. I don't know if y'all are on Twitter too much, but like the broke version is, yeah, but Jesus loves you. Jesus is like, uh, yeah, I love myself. Um, the woke version is, well, we don't have to say that all that's true in this moment. We just have to say, yeah, the world's jacked and it's really bleak and it sucks. I think the bespoke version is exactly these psalms, and I want us to see that there is a no, and then there is a nevertheless So so what Jesus is going to do here on his last night, together with his friends, as he sings these psalms, as he stares death in the face, he is going to confidently and with conviction come into the presence of God, continue praising God and worshiping God, hoping on the goodness of God, hoping and expecting and knowing that though death is coming, so too is resurrection. Though night is coming, so is dawn. Though this is a moment of hopelessness, he does not have to give up his hope. There is a divine nevertheless that we are going to see in this passage and I wanted to change the way that we deal with darkness. I wanted to change our bravery and our courage in sharing our spiritual lives together and opening our mouths and praising God together as we actually sing hallelujah together. Uh, to him, and I wanted to change the way that we think about hope and conviction and carrying on through the dark night. I think that's what Psalm 113 through 118 kind of does. Okay, so Psalm 113 um, opens uh, with a threefold repetition of the phrase, praise Yahweh, praise Yahweh, O his servants, everybody praise Yahweh. Now, th- this phrase, praise Yahweh, Yahweh is... Um, it's it's God's personal name, right? It's when God comes down, he says, this is my name, call me Yahweh. I am that I am. This this is Yahweh. Most of your Old Testaments are going to translate the name Yahweh in all caps, Lord, L-O-R-D, where, where all four of those are caps. That's the divine personal name. Now, the reason that they're doing that is uh, basically that folks in Old Testament time were uncomfortable saying the name Yahweh because they didn't want to take the Lord's name in vain. Right, one, of, one of the commandments that they didn't want to step on. And so instead of saying Yahweh, they would say the word Adonai. And so we, which is just like a more general word for master or Lord. And, and so we kind of um, by tradition have taken that and everywhere that Yahweh occurs in the Old Testament, we sub it out and put Lord there. Uh, New Testament does the same thing. There, there's a whole thing. It doesn't really matter except this. So Psalm 113 starts with praise Yahweh, praise Yahweh, praise Yahweh, which in Hebrew is hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. That yah at the end is short for Yahweh, and the hallelujah is where we get the name Hallel psalms, like halal. You know, you see the the, 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 the like eatery places that are like certain, um, you know, almost... Uh, not kosher, but you know what I mean. Um, This halal, this praise is the way that they start. Hallelujah. So every time we say hallelujah, sing hallelujah, think hallelujah, pray hallelujah, it just means praise you, Yahweh, praise you, Yahweh, praise you, Yahweh. So on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and broke it. He took the wine and shared it. And then he started into the hymns together, praise Yahweh, praise Yahweh, praise Yahweh. After they concluded Psalm 113, they probably continued to Psalm 114. It tells about the escaped from Egypt, how the earth trembles before the mighty God who can split the seas. Psalm 115, remember this is, this is Passover night. They're celebrating the escape from Egypt. Praise Yahweh, he saved us from Egypt. Psalm 115, yes, oh my people, though you wander, though they have idols, though they have these national gods, you have a God who actually speaks and actually moves and really is, they have lifeless idols. Psalm 116 returns to the theme of I love Yahweh because he helps me when I am in great distress. Psalm 117 praises Yahweh, um, encourages all the nations, not just Jewish people, not just the nation of Israel, but all the nations praise Yahweh for his steadfast love and his truth, uh, his, truth his trueness, his truthfulness. Um, and then Psalm 118 says, Yahweh is good, his steadfast love endures forever. 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 Um, It repeats this at least five times throughout this psalm. So, so here, here's what I want to do. Um, as, as I was reading and praying this morning and I was thinking about, hey, in, in these psalms, if I were singing these together with Jesus, well, what are the parts that would stick out to me and just be remarkable that we were singing in this moment? What I want to do over the next few minutes is I want to share some of those with you. Okay, so I don't have time to walk you through um, verse by verse every one of these six psalms and, um, sh- and like let you process in the moment. Um, I've done some of that ahead of time by myself. I encourage you, uh, try that this week. Like go back and read Psalm 113, 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18 and think about, hey, what, what would it have been like to sing this together with Jesus in the room knowing that the next day he was going to be crucified? Because there are things that jump out at, at me as I do this. And I've already pointed out that it's, it's striking. Hey, I'm going to die. I'm going to be betrayed. Let's sing some songs. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise Yahweh. Praise Yahweh. Praise Yahweh. Yes, all of this is broken. All of this is dark. All of this is hard. Nevertheless, praise Yahweh. Psalm 115, verse 18, Jesus and his friends would have sung, The dead don't praise Yahweh, knowing that their Lord was about to die. But we will bless Yahweh from now to forever. The dead don't praise, but we will praise forever and ever. Praise Yahweh. You're like, wait, but you know he's about to die. The dead don't praise. There's going to be praise. Like there's some sort of hope and expectation and conviction. And I'm certain that Jesus was reading in this, I'm going to be resurrected. I'm going to die, but I'm not going to stay dead. I don't have any idea what his disciples understood in that moment. And yet all of us, in hindsight, can sing, The dead do not praise you, O Yahweh, but we will not stay dead forever. Psalm 116 Begins this way. I love Yahweh because he hears me. When the cords of death entangled me, I called on the name of Yahweh, save my life. I love Yahweh because he's heard me, and when death entangled me, I called, oh, save my life. There is a steadfastness of conviction that Jesus is singing together with his friends. I wonder if what's happening in him is what happens to many of us as we sing. You know, as as we sing these songs, we sing them aspirationally, Not not just claiming that I'm perfect, that I have it all together, that I'm perfectly ferocious and fierce and will never doubt. But what we do is we sing aspirationally, God, I want to know this. I want to believe this. I want to cling to this. I want to have this as my real conviction. And Jesus sings this together with his friends, possibly through tears through all his fear, through all the mess of emotions that we know he has because we're going to see them over the next couple of weeks as he pleads with God in the garden. Here in these songs he says things that he knows are true, that he hopes are true, that he very well might not feel are true, and yet he sings them anyway in this moment. Oh God, I love you because you've heard me. God, more than any other time ever in my life, I need you to hear me today and tonight and tomorrow. Oh God, I love you because you hear me. The cords of death have entangled me and yet you hear me. Save my life. Later on in Psalm 116, this is verse eight. They sang together, you have rescued my soul from death. I will walk in Yahweh's presence in the land of the living. These are songs of resistance. These are songs of steadfastly demanding that the darkness will not win. 117 is really short. It's beautiful, but really short. Psalm 118, as, as they're praying, and they're starting to deal with these themes of death and resurrection, and, oh, God, will you save me? The cords of death entangle me. The cords of death entangle me, but I know that I will walk in the Lord's presence in the land of the living. Then Psalm 118 opens, give thanks to Yahweh because he's good. Because his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to Yahweh, He's good. In this moment, I don't feel that he's good. I wonder if he's good. I have my doubts if he's good. I don't know how to philosophically defend that he's good, but I know that he's good. I proclaim that he's good. I cling to the fact that he's good, and I know that his steadfast love has not run out. His steadfast love has not given up. It has not quit. It has not turned back on me. I know that the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. And he says this in verse 1. And then in verse 2, he says, The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. And then in verse 3, they sing together, The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Oh, Lord, won't you let your steadfast love endure forever. And then in verse 4, they sang again. The steadfast love better endure forever. Oh, God, we need you in this moment. Let your steadfast love endure forever. In verse 6, Jesus with his friends sang, Yahweh is for me I will not fear. What can humans do to me? They might strip me and beat me and kill me tomorrow, but what can humans do to me? Then there's a really intense section in verses 10 through 16 where the psalmist talks about being surrounded by the nations rising up against him like a swarm of bees, and yet the right hand of the Lord finally prevails, and in 118.17, Jesus, together with his disciples, declares and proclaims, I will not die, but I will live. A couple verses later, they sang together the stone which the builders of Yahweh's house have rejected. This becomes a very important verse throughout the whole rest of the New Testament. The stone which the builders of Yahweh's house have rejected, it has become the cornerstone. This is Yahweh's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that Yahweh has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And all of a sudden, you have this thing that like a bunch of us knew kind of is like a nursery rhyme. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us, I will rejoice and be glad in it. And it feels like, it feels summer campy, cheesy, like VBS-y. And Jesus and his friends are singing this with gusto around the table of the Last Supper, saying, I'm going to die tomorrow, but Yahweh remains in control. This all is Yahweh's doing, and it is marvelous in his eyes, in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And then the conclusion of the whole night of singing is these three final verses. Yahweh is God. He has given us light. So come on, bind the sacrifice. Strap it to the altar. You are my God. I thank you. My God, I exalt you. Give thanks to Yahweh, for he is good. His love endures forever, and they get up and they leave, and they march to the Mount of Olives together. And now we feel something like I think Jesus and his disciples felt that night. And the reality of why Jesus looked around at his friends and said, you know what I need from you right now? I need you to sing your heart out with me. Give thanks to Yahweh. He is good. His steadfast love has not run out. Believe with me. Sing with me. Proclaim with me. Praise with me. I need to be in his presence, and I need you to be in his presence together with me. Let's sing. And then they march, and we'll get back to all of that over the the next few weeks. But here's here's my hope. I hope that those of us who say, nah, I don't really care about singing. It's just, worship just isn't my thing. I hope we really challenge that in our own hearts and minds and souls. You don't have to be uh, like a fantastic singer, you don't ever have to be up here with the band. But I think that there's something that happens in our singing. Right, Uh, what, what we just did together is what happens in our best singing. We feel things that we don't let ourselves feel the rest of the week. We say things to God that we haven't thought about saying to God the rest of the week. Like singing is this vulnerable, intimate, hopeful, oh Lord, here I am, and I feel like a sucker if you're not really there. There is something so courageous and so bold in this moment that let's become people who sing. I know we have like our intellectualism that keeps us from this. I know we have our weird versions of American masculinity that keep us from this. I know we have like all sorts of things that like uh, conspire together to say, ah, your, your love really isn't that important. Your singing isn't really... Really that important like let's 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 deal with what you think what if we as individuals and as a congregation became a congregation who sings what if we as a congregation continued to connect with God even in the face of great darkness and sing back to him, oh God, you are good. I need you to be good. Your steadfast love has not run out. Jesus is staring in the very face of darkness and despair and continues clinging to this and we can too. We can too because Jesus modeled it for us, but we can too because the God that we are singing to when he showed up on earth, this is what he did. We're not just singing to Jesus. We are singing with Jesus. And man, if that won't mess with your head. Jesus doesn't just want you to tell him how pretty he is. To like shame you, bow before me. Jesus knows that you need this because Jesus knows that he needed this. He knows that there's something that's made alive in your humanity as you interface in the presence of God by singing. I like to get imaginative I suppose in my mind and really think about what were they seeing and feeling and smelling and what were the seats like and what was the table like and what was the cup like not to get too Indiana Jonesy but like what was this moment like at the last supper but the other thing that I like imagining in this moment is Jesus as he's singing his heart out with his friends Steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. It endures forever. You are good. Hallelujah. What's going on in the heavens? Where the scriptures tell us that there's hundreds of millions of heavenly beings in the presence of God singing day and night and praising him you imagine how awesome it was for those angels to be singing in that moment together with Jesus and his disciples? Jesus sang and the heavens sang with him. It's the exact same thing that happens when you sing. When you sing, not only do those angels sing, but apparently Jesus is a singer. Let's sing to him and sing with him as we wage war against the dying of the light and the darkness that surrounds us, as we insist that our God is good, that he has not given up on us, that he has not ignored us, that he is not a pipe dream, but is really here with us. Let's pray and let's sing. God, I need you in this moment. We need you now and always. Would you hear us as we raise our voices to you? As we try to see your goodness, as we try to understand how much you've revealed about yourself to us in the scriptures and particularly in Jesus. And as we see you, would you help us to respond appropriately Would you change our inner beings? Would you change our emotions? Would you change our minds and our psyches and our hearts? Because we're here in in hope. God, sometimes we're here in, in terror, not quite sure whether we can really hope that you're gonna do something and show up and speak back to us and help us or not. Oh God, are you here? Do you hear us when we sing? God, we think you do. Would you hear us right now? God, do you sing with us? Holy Spirit, do you sing within us? We know that you do. Would you do that right here and right now? We love you because you are good. and We sing to you because your steadfast love endures forever. In Jesus' name.
0: listening if you'd like to learn more about us get coffee with a pastor or visit us on a sunday then go to redemptionhou.com and please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are we hope to hear from you soon